Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Piers Morgan Uncensored. Tonight, a six-pack of Tories survive in the race to replace Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, but they don't include Jeremy Hunt and Nadim Zahavi. We'll have all the latest live from Westminster. Cops in crisis on both sides of the Atlantic. America's most famous police chief, Bill Bratton, joins me live to discuss the emergency in police trust. And Bake Off's Dame Prue Leith on her controversial new campaign for assisted dying and why she's taking on her own politician's son about it. I think he's quite wrong. First of all, I'm hoping that he will not manage to muster all his mates in Parliament to vote against it and that I will manage to persuade him. Piers Morgan uncensored tonight as shocking footage from the Evalde, Texas school shooting shows the most cowardly moment in policing history. And with London's Met Police in meltdown, I'm talking live to America's most famous cop, Bill Bratton, the only man to run police departments in L.A. and New York, America's two biggest cities. That's coming up. But first, breaking news. Nadine Zahawi and Jeremy Hunt are booted out of the race to lead the Conservative Party. Six candidates remain in the battle to be Britain's next Prime Minister. Talk TV political editor Kate McCann is live in the hotbed of Westminster. Kate, good evening to you. We're down to six and two quite big beasts who would have fancied their chances of winning gone. That's right. Jeremy Hunt and Nadim Zahawi, as you say. Piers, I just have to reference the music you might be able to hear because there is a party going on over the wall behind me. It is, in fact, a party linked to Penny Mordaunt, who has had a very, very good day on the campaign trail here in Westminster. She was essentially the surprise this afternoon in that announcement at five o'clock because we knew that Rishi Sunak was probably going to be leading the pack, and he was with 80-odd votes. But Penny Mordaunt had a significant showing among MPs after her launch earlier on today. And it has to be said, the momentum at the moment is behind her. Liz Truss is due to launch her campaign tomorrow, but the pressure is on to, for her to perform, to gather up those votes from Jeremy Hunt and Nadim Zahawi. And the pressure tonight, too, on Kemi Badenoch and others in the campaign who are at the bottom end of voting, including Tom Tugendhat and Suella Breverman, 
to essentially bin themselves out of the race and throw their weight behind somebody else because the right wing of the Conservative Party is really worried that potentially there could be a bun fight to try and run off against Rishi Sunak and they really, really do not want the former Chancellor to be the next Prime Minister. And if you're Rishi and you're the favourite at the moment, you're looking at all this and thinking the real problem could be Penny Morden. She's got all the momentum. So he will tactically be trying to stop her becoming the person he has to face off against. How would he do that? Well, at the moment, the Rishi Sunak campaign think all they need to do is essentially keep the focus on why he is the best candidate for the job. And they've got some polling that shows that he could do well, potentially, against Sir Keir Starmer. They're not particularly worried about either one of Penny Mordaunt or Liz Truss at this stage in the competition because they are relying on the fact that the right wing of the Conservative Party are so divided over which candidate to back to try and prevent him from winning this race that essentially, unless they get their act together within the next 24 hours, he could well be fairly safe to sail through the next stage of the vote tomorrow. There will only be one vote tomorrow, not two, and there probably will only be one person knocked out tomorrow. So Rishi will make it through this next stage and into the weekend. I think, though, Piers, there are some big questions about whether Rishi Sunak's campaign is inspiring enough, whether it is a little bit too slick for his own good. Even some of his supporters tonight are wondering whether he needs to create a bit of chaos and a bit of momentum to challenge those like Penny Mordaunt, who are getting people here in Westminster excited. Do you know what? I think the last thing we need after Boris Johnson and his shambolic regime is chaos. I actually like the fact that actually Rishi <laughs> seems quite calm. I thought Penny Mordaunt did a very good launch today. You know, I, originally I thought, you know, it might be Rishi v Liz Truss. I'm not so sure now. I thought she was very assured today, Penny Morton. She looked to me like a potential leader. Yeah, and I think that's actually surprised some people here in Westminster. Don't get me wrong, her campaign does have some problems and she may well come up against some roadblocks. And it's not always the person who looks like they're the front runner that ends up in the final two. There are some questions around, for example, her views on trans rights, on women's rights, on what exactly a woman ought to be. She did try and head some of those off today, but those questions linger tonight. And it's more about her record, people not knowing quite enough about her. And secondly, Piers, you're right. This is a vote that appeals to the Conservative Party. This is not about the wider electorate. So actually, the fact that Rishi Sunak is predictable, the fact that people know what he's about, and the fact that he's already been in government may well appeal to the electorate in this case, which is Conservatives. And it was interesting because her Achilles heel is supposedly about women, but she actually directly took that onto them. I thought in rather a clever way, embracing humour and then an emphatic comment about what she thinks a woman is. Let's go with the humour first. She said this about Margaret Thatcher and uh, one of her previous uh, top people. I think it was Margaret Thatcher that said that every Prime Minister needs a willy. <laughs> a woman like me doesn't have one. Very funny. And then she said this about what a woman is. A quick one and a straightforward one. How do you define a woman? I'm a woman, I am biologically a woman, and I can tell you, Chris, that if you have been in the Royal Navy and you have competed physically against men, you understand the biological difference between men and women. And I thought that she showed in both those responses, one, humour and a knowledge of the history of the party. It was Willie Whitelaw, of course, that Maggie Thatcher was talking about. Uh, but secondly, I thought reminding people she was a Royal Navy reservist big tick, I would think, with Conservative Party membership, but also an emphatic statement, really, there about what 
is the burning issue of the day, which is this whole issue of whether transgender uh, athletes can compete against women, for example. I, I thought she pretty well nailed that quite well. Look, I think even her supporters would concede that, yes, she did go some way to nailing that today. But the reason why she's being asked this question is because she has previously said that trans women are women. And she said it at the dispatch box in the House of Commons. And I think she's pretty much the only person in the government who's done that, who's gone that far. And that's the reason why people are asking for her views about women, what exactly a woman is, how you would define a woman, and that whole conversation. Her supporters today, after her launch, believe that she went some way to trying to tackle that issue, but they acknowledge that that question will probably come back around again. And I think this point about the fact that some people suggest that Penny Morden has taken different views on the same issue over time, that might be a problem for her when she has to face the voters around the country, when there are televised hustings, when journalists can put those questions to her. And it's worth saying, Piers, you know, she did take questions from the floor today from yeah. journalists, which other campaigns have not done, and certainly in a much more free way than other campaigns who've had a list of preferred journalists, mm. if you like, and not allowed others to get in. So... It swings and roundabouts, but I think she could have a bumpy ride in some of the later stages. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, but she certainly put herself right in the frame. Uh, Kate, great to talk to you. We'll, I'm sure we'll be back tomorrow. So bring me some more hot goss tomorrow, please. <laughs> I will. <laughs> well, next, breaking travel news, and, of course, it's total chaos. Uh, British Royal Unions have called another strike. They'll bring the country to a standstill again on the 27th of July. And if you want a holiday, well, good luck with that. Interminable queues... Bursting departure halls, bedlam at passport control. Must have been lucky enough to even get a flight. Here's a taste from passengers grounded at a currently seemingly paralysed Heathrow. London Heathrow today. London Heathrow today. London Heathrow today. London Heathrow today. We've been here five, six hours. No one can find our bags. Everyone's just wandering around. I'm begging you, if you are flying anywhere in the next few weeks, get there four hours early. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> just about sums it up. Well, I'm joined by aviation analyst and travel expert Alex Macheris. Alex, good to talk to you. Uh, Heathrow, what a complete and utter shambles. Heathrow has become. They're even now putting a limit on the number of passengers that can go in. I think it's 100,000, which is 4,000 off what it normally is per day. Uh, what is going on? How has it come to this? It's chaos, Piers. And you know what? I mean, if we look at Heathrow, for example, this is Britain's hub airport, the airport that has been vying for expansion for so long, seemingly completely unable to cope. Now that passengers have returned in significant numbers, but also realising that, wow, we have no staff anywhere, no baggage handlers, no ground staff, following all those redundancies, and it's left the airport, Britain's hub airport, having to tell the world's airlines, don't fly your passengers out of here, or rather, if you are going to fly your passengers out of here, we can only have 100,000 a day. Just a reminder, peers, in 2019, they would have about 125,000 passengers per day. So it, it is pretty chaotic. And I think we need some honesty here. The worst is not yet over. I mean, we, we, the worst hasn't yet come because the kids in the UK, the students, the pupils, they haven't yet broken up. We're going to see disruption intensify. And I think it will be far more honest to be honest about that before things smoothen out from kind of mid-September onwards. Why is it that some airlines like Ryanair seem to have got this right and are doing really well? They had the sort of prior planning part of all this sorted. 
but others have got it completely wrong. And why has Heathrow itself got it so hopelessly wrong in predicting traffic and so on? So you've got the, the, the famous European low-cost airline Ryanair, and I just spoke with the Sunday Times about this this past weekend. It really comes down to the fact that they did not get rid of as many staff as other airlines, nowhere near on the same level. O'Leary, their outspoken kind of bullish CEO, said that he wanted to exercise every other option, including unpaid leave during the pandemic, rather than simply pursue those tens of thousands of redundancies. British Airways, as a reminder, removed a third of their workforce, 13,000 staff members, now scratching their heads that they haven't got staff nine months later to be able to deliver the summer service that they had sold. And that's another problem that we face here is that many of these airlines with the airports were so ambitious for summer 22, they have ultimately sold a schedule that they can't deliver because their staffing levels are anything but normal to be able to deliver as if it were a normal year. And that's why we're in this situation. And I don't think we're going to get much honesty going forward about practicalities of what people can do and how the government can work with the airlines and the sector because we've got this kind of weird zombie government now in the middle of a leadership campaign. We're already in late July, and so I think they're going to think, well, kind of let these rough few weeks get out of the way before they can take yeah, some... Yeah, but for most people, act. these rough few weeks are the holiday they've been waiting for, in some cases, right. for nearly three years, right, after a pandemic. And now there's going to be no trains to get them to the airport anyway, and if they do get there, the flight may have been cancelled, and all hell will break loose on the ground as well. I think it's a, a complete disgrace, particularly from an industry that was so bailed out by the government through the pandemic. This just comes down to bad management. Bad, bad management. Bottom line, right? You, in one sense, you are, yeah, because the airlines could have seen this coming. I wrote a column myself in January saying that the staffing levels were not adequate for the summer schedule they had sold. The airlines will blame the government because they'll say that they were cornered with those erratic decision-making policies, the overnight Amber Plus, the Thursday night travel roulette from Grant Shapps in saying that they had to go ahead with the redundancies and the redundancies have now left all of these empty vacancies and therefore the disruption. So, you know, there, there are a variety of contributors here, but for passengers, I think try to arrive not too early, around three hours before, because too early doesn't achieve much. And also, if you've got an iPhone, then pop an air tag into your luggage because luggage is being lost left, right and center. If you haven't got an iPhone, use a similar product like a smart tag and so on. There's only so much the passenger can do, but in this scenario, it would be helpful if we heard about passenger rights. But of course, if everyone knew their rights, these airlines would go bust. So well, they go I could give everyone a tip for nothing, which is only take hand luggage. I've been doing that for years, and that way, they never lose my luggage. Alex, good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. Uncensored next, new security camera footage, shocking footage, shows police delaying for over an hour while the school shooter in Avalde, Texas, slaughtered 19 children. One cop even used hand sanitizer rather than engage the shooter. They've got blood on their hands, these cows, and it was a devastating blow for trust in the police. So how to restore faith in policing? I'll ask the top US cop, Bill Bratt, after the break. Trust in policing is in crisis on both sides of the Atlantic, so what do we do about it? On one side, a radical fringe wants to defund the police, tear down those broken institutions as they see it and start again. On the other, back the blues, spend, strengthen, support our cops, defend the police. 
I'm with those, but it's not always easy, not when you see videos like the one I'm about to show you. And warning, it is truly shocking. This is shocking security camera footage of the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, where two teachers and 19 children were shot dead. And it shows craven, cowardly police cowering in the corridor for more than an hour as the children were slain inside their classroom. Two minutes later, Ramos strolls down the corridor. A child turns to run for his life as the killer opens fire. And just three minutes after that, armed police enter the building. But within 60 seconds, they retreat, even as the gunman continues to fire at the kids. Officers with ballistic shields, rifles and body armour then wait in the corridor for more than an hour as the massacre unfolds. One checks his phone. Another is seen sanitising his hands. And at one point, Sheriff's Deputy Felix Rubio has to be held back by his own colleagues in tears because his own 10-year-old daughter was inside. She died. Well, finally, at 12.50, 77 minutes after the gunman first entered the school, these armed officers eventually summoned up the guts to go into that classroom and kill him, but not before 19 children. <laughs> that kind of policing is impossible to defend. And on the subject of trust, how can we defend the racial disparity in the number of people killed by American police? Or the sickening murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin? Well, this is where it goes to. This is where it ends up. More shocking footage. This time, a small child in Minneapolis, Floyd's home state, swinging punches at a cop and abusing him. No respect whatsoever for the police. In the UK, the Met Police in London is beset by scandal after scandal. The murder of Sarah Everard by Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins put the force's failings under a brutal international spotlight. The force has been accused of institutional racism, homophobia, misogyny. We're witnessing a massive breakdown here too in policing trust, much of it self-inflicted. So how do we fix this mess and restore confidence in the police? Well, Bill Bratton is the man to ask. He's a former police chief in both New York and Los Angeles, as well as an advisor to the Met Police here in London. Joins me now. Bill, great to see you. Thank you very much for coming on. Good to be with you and your audience. I wanted to start, if I may, with this shocking footage that's been leaked from the massacre in Valde. Uh, we don't normally see this kind of footage, and it's extremely harrowing. But perhaps the most disturbing part of it is the inaction of all these armed police. What did you make of it? Well, it is almost impossible to explain the unexplainable. Uh, we are handicapped in some respects by looking at video that's been edited, unedited. Uh, we don't have the, uh, the durable aspect of it, the audio. Uh, but just what we are looking at makes you angry, extraordinarily angry, particularly as somebody who's been 50 years in the police profession. Can't explain it, 
can't just, certainly not going to try to justify it. There's going to have to be a lot of uh, very thorough investigation of what went wrong there because everything looked like it went wrong. No supervision, uh, no coordination, no organization. And uh, in some instances, maybe cowardice. In some instances, uh, bravery that was first exhibited in the first offices of down the hall was shot at but then retreated. Uh, it went against everything we trained for uh, in American policing. Uh, since Columbine back in 1989, I think it was, uh, we train our officers, one of you, two of you, three of you, four of you, you go to the danger. That's the expectation. You take the oath of office and put that badge on. Uh, most of these officers did not go toward the danger and uh, can't justify it. Truly shocking. Um, on a wider point, Bill, you've, I think you're the only top policeman to have run the police in both New York and LA. So you've been in this game a very long time and dealt with all sorts of crime. You were famous for the broken window strategy where you, you take care of you know, the lesser crimes in an effort to try and stem the tide of the more serious crimes. And it was very successful. When you've looked at what's been going on with crime in America, but also in London, you came over here to, to try and advise the, the beleaguered Met Police. Are there parallels? And what should be done to restore trust in the police? There are extraordinary parallels between British police services and American police forces. Uh, the issue of broken windows that, uh, uh, while I'm noted for my support of an implementation of that strategy dealing with so-called quality of life, victimless crime, uh, there's a more famous individual, uh, Sir Robert Peel, your first head of the Metropolitan Police, Prime Minister, in his very famous nine principles of policing, which is the foundation I stand on. The first one is the basic mission for which the police exist is to prevent crime and disorder. In my country, in your country, in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, and unfortunately in some communities even today, the emphasis was strictly on responding to crime. It wasn't believed the police could prevent it. And the focus and prioritization was serious crime with an almost total neglect of the so-called broken windows or quality of life offenses of loitering, public drunkenness, graffiti, prostitution, the hooligans hanging on the corner all night long, keeping you awake. Uh, my rise in American policing was I recognized very early on that you need to focus on both serious crime and quality of life. And why quality of life is what people see every day. And it might be victimless in the sense you don't have a specific victim, but what is destroyed are neighborhoods, they deteriorate. What is destroyed is confidence in police and government that we care on it, we can be effective. The turnaround of New York City began in the subways when we started focusing on the 5,000 homeless, or you, you call, it, call it sleeping rough, uh, in our subways. The 250,000 people a day not paying the fare, the aggressive begging, the graffiti. By focusing on that, the ridership began to feel more secure. Based on that success, Rudy Giuliani hired me in 1994. Interestingly enough, I learned from the Metropolitan Police, the British Police Services. That's where I got Sir Robert Peel's nine principles. Sir Robert Mark visited Boston in 1975 and met a very impressionable young sergeant named Bill Bratton. And I marry those nine principles. That is the foundation of uh, your, your new Met Commissioner, uh, uh, Sir Mark Raleigh. Uh, he is really going to focus on policing by consent. The reason you call police services in your country versus police forces in my country 
is this idea that you're there to serve and service the community. And you try to do that with the minimum of force. In your country, I applaud, and I'm always amazed, being quite frank with you, that the majority of your officers still vote when it comes to a vote to not carry firearms because they feel that will reduce the confidence that the public has in them and the idea that they are a police service and not a force. Is one of the problems for police, both in America and the UK, and indeed everywhere at the moment, that social media can very quickly amplify anything, uh, good, exactly. bad and ugly. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the George Floyd video. If we'd never seen the video, which came onto social media via someone's uh, cell phone, if we hadn't seen that, I doubt it would have ignited the kind of firestorm that happened. But once you saw it, you couldn't unsee it. And the reaction of that little boy in the earlier clip abusing police right. in Minneapolis is, can probably be charted right back to all the furore around George Floyd's death and the Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter protests and so on. And the same here with uh, the Sarah Everard story, where you have a serving police officer kidnapping and murdering a, a beautiful young woman. Um, again, social media drove that story to a, a tremendous height of rage by the public. How significant do you think it is, social media, and how do responsible police forces deal with this? It's very significant, but I look at it from the perspective of a plus and a minus. The minus is that uh, incidents can be amplified and magnified uh, in a very significant way. Uh, we saw that with George Floyd. Uh, going back to Rodney King back in the early 90s, uh, the first time a videotaping uh, was aired on American television before social media even occurred and what that brought about in America. Uh, when I talk about the plus and the minus, the plus side of it is police can use social media to their benefit, which I certainly have done in Los Angeles, in New York, uh, with the millions of followers who access our Twitter sites, our Facebook sites, the idea of us telling our story from our perspective and sometimes with more facts than the media on social media might have. In the Boston Marathon bombing back in 2013, the then police commissioner Ed Davis was able through his newly created Twitter site, the Boston police, was able to very quickly refute reportage, reporting by the New York Post and the CNN News Network that was erroneous. Erroneous information in terms of who the suspects were, what was happening. I remember so that, Bill, because I was actually I was at, at CNN at the time. I was on air covering that story. And I remember that. <laughs> You're quite right. Um, You've done this book, The Profession, a memoir of policing in America. Um, how important is something that I think is hugely important, what I think my viewers probably feel is very important, physical presence of police on the streets, that if you cut the number of officers on the streets, if you cut the visibility, that automatically crime goes up? I am a big believer in that, the importance of visibility, the importance of not just visibility, but the police being actively seen doing something. And it doesn't necessarily mean enforcing. It means greeting. How are you? Good day. Nice to see you. Eye contact. Uh, I find it infuriating when I'm walking down the street and I see a police officer coming toward me and they don't make eye contact. Mm. Uh, recently, I was in uh, London two weeks ago uh, for the policy exchange to discuss the new Metropolitan Police Commission selection process. And I noticed that you very seldom see police in London now, other than uh, around major institutions. I did a presentation at 10 Downing Street, certainly down by the palace, but 
uh, you see the police cars racing by, but you just don't see walking officers. Maybe it's the area that I was in. I was up in the Hyde Park, Marble Arch area, and then down by the government uh, offices. But the mistake I think that happened in your country, Pierce, uh, was uh, a number of years ago, you effectively, well ahead of us, defunded your police. Yes. You cut the police budget by 20%. You closed Graham's Hill. You sold off half your police stations. And you have not recovered. And Huge mistake. We took 20,000 police off the street. Yeah, we took 20,000 cops off the street. It was a catastrophic yeah. mistake, and we've been playing catch-up ever since. And I know that you, yeah. you believed in that. Uh, Bill, I could talk to you for a lot longer. Thank you uh, for joining me. I really appreciate it. No one has better credentials. Uh, about policing than you, as, as we've just heard. So thank you very much indeed for sparing the time. All the best. Ron says of next, should you let your family have a say in your right to die? Bake Off star Dame Prulief thinks not. Yes, we would only be having this conversation when I was within six months of dying. I don't believe that my son would ruin, make my last six months even more distressing by, um, by refusing me that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss A great British Bake Off star Dame Prulief is a passionate advocate for assisted dying which at the moment remains illegal in Britain. Her son, the Conservative MP Danny Kruger, completely disagrees. He spoke out recently in Parliament against assisted dying in a debate which was held after a petition reached 100,000 signatures. Over half the people in other countries where assisted dying is legal choose it because they feel they are a burden to their families. Tragically, a lot also say that they are lonely. Isn't this terrible? People getting the state to help to kill them because they don't want to be a burden on a family that never visits them. Talk to any hospice manager about relatives and they will quietly 
confirm it. There are a lot of people who want Granny or Grandpa to hurry up and die. Well, here we have a very famous mother and her nearly as famous political son at loggerheads on a fascinating debate. Well, I spoke to Dame Prulief a little earlier about this. Well, I'm joined now by Prulief. Pru, lovely to talk to you. Hello, Piers. This is a very serious subject and opinions have been raging uh, on both sides about it. Why do you feel so passionately about this issue? Well, I suppose it's because I'm 82 and heading for the big decision. Um, but I, I really, I mean, I, I started getting interested in the whole subject when my um, elder brother died, and he died a, a really horrible death. Um, and recently, my younger brother died, and he died at home with his family around him, and he didn't um, have assisted suicide because he didn't need it, but he had the sort of death that I think that people who want assisted suicide um, would dearly love to have, you know, at home, their own bed, surrounded by their family. What is very interesting, Pro, is that in many states in America, including California and New Jersey, Washington, mm -hmm. Vermont, um, in many of these states, assisted suicide is completely legal. It's legal in many parts of Australia. Uh, it's legal, I think, in Canada now. So there are, there are lots of countries in the world where assisted suicide is now a legal practice. And, and what's more, it's being, um, you know, it looks as if, um, the, uh, as, as if Jersey, um, Scotland will get there before us. Mm. I mean, it's, it's only the, the UK government that has been so uh, deleterious. To play yeah. devil's advocate for a moment, there are reports out of Oregon, for example, uh, where 53% of patients who were helped to die gave as a reason that they were a burden on family, friends and carers rather than citing pain or fear of pain. Are you concerned you know, about, about that part of it? Yes. Um, I think that, first of all, I think it's a legitimate reason. Um, if you... You know, if you know that you are causing your own, your family a lot of anxiety and anxiousness and and and, and worry about you, and you are um, either in huge pain or not enjoying your life, then um, it, it's it, it, it's a valid reason. I mean, I'm not saying for a minute that um, that people should want to commit suicide or have an assisted death just because they're a burden. But being a burden is one of the things that, that is so distressing. I mean, see, this is where I think the, the slippery slope argument, which I think Gordon Brown and others have espoused, I, I do think there is a concern there, isn't there, where hmm, there you're, you, look, you're, you're, a, you're from a lovely family of well-intentioned people, I have no doubt. Um, hmm. However, there are lots of families which perhaps are not quite so well-intentioned to their oldest and not-so-dearest, um, who, particularly if there's money perhaps lurking mm. in wills and so on, would be, tempted, would be tempted potentially to really make these people feel they are a massive burden and should shuffle off this mortal coil very sharpish. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a, a really serious worry. I mean, first of all, I think we have to have enough safeguards to be absolutely certain that this is the patient or the person's real choice and that they're not being um, in any way coerced. And there are ways to do that. 
and but it does require you know a lot of interviews and 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 care but also i think i really think this is a bit of a bogeyman that doesn't although it does exist it's, it is quite small one of your sons is a tory mp who's actually vehemently opposed this legislation. So what are you yeah. going to do if you decide in a few years' time you've become a massive burden and he says, well, sorry, don't... sorry, Mum, I'm not doing it? Well, uh, that's going to be a real problem because we are devoted to each other um, and he has generally very um, principled um, objections. I think he's quite wrong. Um, but I hope he'll... I'm hoping I'll manage to... First of all, I'm hoping that he will not manage to muster all his mates in Parliament to vote against it, and that I will manage to persuade him before I get there. I mean, it's a fascinating situation it's, it's where your different. own son is literally in the Houses of Parliament campaigning for the complete opposite. Many families have disagreements about all sorts of things. We happen to have one about this. Um, but I really think... I honestly believe that it... I should be um, in control of my own life. I mean, I think the idea that um, that, that somehow human life is, is so sacred... I mean, sacred to whom? It's not sacred to me, and it's my life I'm No, but you see, about. OK, by so here's means, again, by though... By all means, think his life is... I, I get it, but, but here's the thing. If, you, if I talk to your son about this, I'm sure he'd say, well, that's fine. That might be her view, my mother's view, but actually, I love my mother and I don't want to lose my mother and I want to get every moment I can out of her. And if she's not in searing agony, but is simply no. drifting towards the end of her life, I don't want her to be, we to be only, pulling the plug. Piers, we would only be having this conversation when I was within six months of dying. I don't believe that my son would ruin, make my last six months even more distressing by um, by refusing me that. Yeah, but I think Anyhow, he would argue... Well, I, don't want to speak for, I don't want to speak for him, but he, I think from the arguments he's put forward, he would probably argue to that point. I'm sure He's, he would. He I'm would sure say he that would. Your, your, doing, your decision would compound his distress. What about his right to not let you take your life? No, I'm sorry. When it comes to my own life, it's my life. <laughs> um, tough, tough. He's going to have... <laughs> He's going to lose me within six months anyway, so you know, man up and bear us a few months earlier, or a few weeks earlier. Brulee, it's a fascinating debate, uh, not least your own situation with your own family, uh, but fortunately you're looking in rude health, so we won't have to encounter this issue, I would imagine, for a very long time to come, thankfully. But thank you for joining me, I appreciate it. There are so many people who are not in rude health and we need to think about them. Yeah. We do. It's, a, it's an interesting debate. And as you say, most of the public are with you, not your son. Yeah. <laughs> Prue, great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Well, on Censored Next, this could get quite fiery. Tonight's Piers Pack, journalist Ash Sarker, last streaming at me on Good Morning Britain, and Talk TV presenter Julia Hartley-Brewer, who screams at me morning, noon and night. It's not going to be pretty. Join us after the break. Well, tonight's Piers back. The last time I appeared on television with one of these ladies, this happened. Tell you what I do, Ash. I go and check out some basic facts about your hero, Obama. He's not my hero. I'm how a communist, heroic he comes you idiot. <laughs> you didn't plan any protests against him, did you? Well, I'm happy to still call myself an idiot, identify as an idiot. Do you still identify as a commie? 
All day, every day. <laughs> Welcome back. It's been a while. And Julia, lovely to see you. Lovely Julia Hardin-Brewer, who's a Talk TV presenter. I want to start with women, because Penny Morden today has been coming under a bit of flack for her views about women. Said two things today which I suspect will ruffle probably all the right feathers. Take a look at these. I think it was Margaret Thatcher that said that every Prime Minister needs a willy. <laughs> a woman like me doesn't have one. A quick one and a straightforward one. How do you define a woman? I'm a woman. I am biologically a woman. And I can tell you, Chris, that if you have been in the Royal Navy and you have competed physically against men, you understand the biological difference between men and women. Well, apart from the fact that I loved her campaign slogan, PM for PM, which has a great ring to it. Um, <laughs> all right, Ash Sarka, you identify as a woman? Sometimes. Always? Always. You are a woman. I am. What is a woman to you? So, for me, a woman is someone who is an adult, who is human and is female. And female is both a biological category, where we're talking about biological sex, and a gender category. So, depending on what we're talking about, if you're saying best female rapper, no-one's checking chromosomes. If you're talking about female reproductive health, you know, people aren't just talking about your social life. Um, it can be a biological or a gender category. So when, for example, the hot issue of the day, when you have trans women athletes who are competing against women born to female biological bodies, do you think that's fair? Do I think that's fair? I think you'd have to take a look at the whole picture. It or Leah, Leah Thomas, the swimmer, for example. So it might be that in five to ten years, when you have much more uh, trans athletes breaking through mm. and you might see cisgender women at a disadvantage, you have to go, let's, re let's rejig the system in a way which can protect women's sport and include trans people. I think right now, because trans people have been so marginalised from you See, here's my problem. You're a smart young lady, right? I follow you on Twitter. You're very smart. You, you're very intellectually rigorous about stuff. You know, you know, when you look at stuff like Leah Thomas demolishing women in the pool in America, that this isn't fair. And you can support, as I do, and you do, trans rights, defenders and equality, and understand that on issues like sport, it is unfair. But the thing that I'm saying is that we haven't had a trans Olympic medalist yet. Female sport... We've had a trans... Still... We've had, well, hang on. We've had a trans weightlifter in the New Zealand Olympics team depriving a woman born to a female body oh, of a... Oh, please stop place. saying woman born to a female body. Well, OK, fair enough. Woman. There's okay. only one kind. We're not a variant of women. There's only one kind of woman. I'm not a cis woman. I'm not a woman born mm. to... I'm a woman. That's all I am. I'm a woman. Right. And the other kind aren't women. And I guess my point... Fair enough. And my point about this, I think, would be that in that case, this weightlifter was unsuccessful competing against men, suddenly becomes Olympic standard as a woman and deprives an actual woman of being able to get an Olympic place. But she was also unsuccessful competing against women in the, in the Olympics. Well, she did bad in the Olympics, but she still got to the Olympics. She's an Olympian. And yet, as a man, she never got anywhere near it. I just don't think that there's enough evidence that <laughs> women, as a sex, are en masse being drummed out of elite sport. And the thing that I would say... They are, is though. That, they are, but, is Ash, that... that's just wrong. No, we're no, seeing no, we're it talking... in sprinting, we're seeing it in rugby, we're seeing it in cricket, we're seeing it in swimming, we're seeing it everywhere. As there are more and more trans people coming out as trans, and I've got absolute respect for that, but as more and more people do it, you know, we had Lord Winston on last night, who, was, who couldn't have been clearer. There is biological sex 
and there is gender, and they are completely different things. And, and, and look, I'm not here to talk about, you know, this is biological sex and this is gender. When it comes to the condition of trans people in this country, we know that they're disproportionately excluded from using athletic and healthcare facilities. Mm -hmm. We also okay. know... No, we don't. Yeah, they are. But if no, we don't. Yeah, if, yeah, there are. no if evidence you, for that yeah, statement. Yeah, there are. There are reports about oh, trans reports. people. Well, yeah, because that's all we've got to go on. Um, that show that trans people use gyms use athletics facilities at far lower rates than cisgender people. So I'd say let's deal with that. The other things I'd say let's deal with is, look, the day-to-day -day problems trans people face aren't about whether or not they can compete in the Olympics. We're talking about one in eight trans people report being assaulted or abused at their place of work by a colleague or customer within the last 12 months. A quarter of all trans people will experience homelessness at some point in their lives. And I think that... Your audience so at home why, are, so why ch right so, so the, your audience at home are empathetic so that's people, important and you're an empathetic that's man. important to know and I, I hate to hear that and I'm aware of that so why choose the hill to go on I want to have an unfair advantage over women in sport why not just say we get it that's unfair and bring people with them as they move towards proper so fairness and equality no, no community is a monolith all right? mm. No community is a monolith. And you're going to have some trans people who go, for me, the really important thing is I want to participate in sport. But that's going to be, by its definition, because it's elite sport, a really small number of okay, people. The problem, I, OK, the picture I want to move all, on, but the problem is it is getting more and more people. Julia, mm. let's talk about COVID and Novak Djokovic, because you and I have been going at it on Twitter, right? So I don't think you should be allowed anywhere near the, U the USO, because America, if I want to go to America, which I will be quite soon, I have to take a test and show my vaccination status. Mm -hmm. That's it. So does he. Yeah. So he yes, shouldn't be allowed and, to play, right? And, and, well, he, he has to abide by the rules, same rules everyone else has right. to do. Although, interestingly, in 2020, everyone seemed quite happy for sportsmen and women to have completely different rules than the rest of us, being able to travel things like the Australian Open, when other people couldn't even get home to see their families. Um, yeah, he, he's not asking for special treatment, though, he simply said. Uh, I'm not vaccinated, I'm not showing my vaccine status, uh, and therefore um, I can't play in the US Open. The whole point is, it's a stupid rule. Your vaccine protects you. Anyone who's taken a vaccine, it protects them. We know with Omicron, it doesn't actually provide much protection at all uh, from infection. It does protect you from getting seriously well, ill or dying. Well, the key point dying. is it stops you from but, dying. I mean, well, that's the well, whole point no, of the vaccine. Piers, a young, healthy man, what is he, in his 30s, his chances of dying but you're are... You're a young, healthy woman. You've, had, you've been jabbed, right? I, I have chosen to disclose my jab status when I chose to disclose <laughs> You sound it. like one of those people but, talking about... Yeah. But about no, but, transport no, but that's, well, that's my business. But whether one chooses to actually show that at, at, a, at a border, or you can choose. This is the thing. You mm. should be able to make a choice. Bodily autonomy is the most fundamental human right. Novak Djokovic isn't asking for special treatment. I think it's incredible he's standing by his principles. He's a young, healthy man. Just, he, peak of physical fitness. Yeah, he I know. Doesn't but he's also a role model who will have definitely deterred a lot of people who perhaps should have the jab from having it. A role model for sports it. people standing up for their principles. They're huge what, role like, models. What, like, like the England football? who take a knee for, a, 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 yes, for, actually, for Black yes. Lives Matter, yes. but they'd happily go and uh, compete in the World Cup in Qatar, right. where, where we have outrageous treatment of gay people. I've no problem with them the... taking a knee. I think it's good when yes, they take the 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 knee. In fact, funny enough, there. when the players take the knee at Arsenal when I go, the entire crowd of 60,000 people, white, black, and any time of it, yeah, they all cheer. But it's I don't hear a single hypocrisy. dissenting voice. But it's hypocrisy, because you okay. can't, you can't, they, you can't do that and then go and play in Qatar. Ash, this pack of Lurpak has nearly, like, doubled in price in the last few months. Is that the nine Was 335, <laughs> now seven... Now 489, I'm sorry. So 50% or more rise, right? This is indicative of what's going on with prices everywhere. We're choosing a new Prime Minister. We can talk about all the culture war stuff, and I think a lot of it is relevant and important. But actually, for most of our viewers yep. around the world, cost of living 
cost of butter and margarine. And when you look at the costs of heating on top of the increase of the price of fuel, the price of food, the price of rent, everything getting more expensive, you know it's not going up people's pay packets. And in that kind of context, what political party is standing up for those people? Mm. There's no major political party in this country saying absolutely everyone deserves uh, matching inflation pay rise. So effectively, people are being told you're going to be made poorer, deal with it. And I think there's only so long a society can hold itself together under those kinds of conditions. Julia, Rishi Sunak favourite at the moment, Penny Morden making a march. The problem is, in a poll that came out today, uh, apparently at least two people who were asked in the poll thought she was Adele. Let's take a look. <laughs> They do look quite similar. But the point <laughs> being, she doesn't have much recognition. We've got a few seconds left. There we are. Do you, think, do you think she can beat Rishi? I think she can. I think it's all to play for. Anyone making predictions right now is probably a fool. I think it, it, you, their second preferences is going to be where it all goes, and that could all change in the next And Ash Forrest said he went today with his head held high. <laughs> Last thought from you. I Make mean, it quick. this is a man with a almost pathological lack of self-awareness, so I'm not surprised. He should have gone with his head held in shame. That's it. Thank you to my panel. Actually, quite civilised. Come back. I liked it. <laughs> That's it from me. Whatever you're up to, keep it uncensored. Good night. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.